Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, A Humanistic Enterprise, we are joined by Jim McCartan, Associate Professor of Theology and Ignatian Faculty Fellow at Fordham University, who shares his thoughts about what teaching is and could be as we look ahead to the challenges and changes of the next academic year. So, Jim, thanks for coming to talk to us on Twice Over. It's great to see you. I'm delighted to be here. I've waited a long time to sit down with you all, too. So I'm wondering what your thoughts were about the disembodiment Mm. of online teaching, what you learned from that, and what maybe you're taking forward into the fall when we expect Mm. to be back in the classroom. I was so scared to start teaching this past year, largely, I want to say, because of this embodied, disembodied um, challenge. I feel like there's maybe one or two things I know how to do. And do I do them well? I don't know. Somebody else will have to judge that. But one of the things I feel like I know how to do is stand up in front of a classroom, walk up and down, read faces of students, um, sort of figure out what the emotional tenor of the classroom is and, and figure out how to proceed with the ideas that we're trying to engage with. And so when the pandemic kind of came along and, and, and caused us all to rethink our teaching, that was a source of enormous fear for me. I, I used to, I was saying last summer, I, you know, need to learn how to do a whole new thing. As it turned out, there's some truth to that, right? But I've also interestingly found that doing hybrid models, so some to, to I, I was able to be in person with students to a certain extent, but most of the time, most of my students were online. One of the things I discovered is that there is a way to to kind of be embodied on this screen that maybe didn't replace what I had lost, but that enabled me to kind of gain some connection um, or to, to maintain some connection with students. I'll say two things about that. First thing is this, when it comes to my own engagement with students, what I really valued was the let's say out of 35 people in a class, the two or three who maybe turned their camera on and allowed me to see their faces in their eyes. Or when I was in person, the one or two people who I could read above their masks and and tell what was going on. And so I felt like those people enabled me to kind of hold on to a line of continuity with my past self as a teacher and to to kind of be present to that emotional thing that that I feel I'm doing in the classroom and, and trying to read always. Second thing is from my own side of the screen, my mother, I think I'm very, I think I am my mother reincarnate, which we can get into in another session. But at any <laughs> But my mother, I think like me, was somebody who had a lot of facial expression and who I always, you know, when I would watch Lucille Ball as a little child, and I love Lucy, Lucy reminded me of my mother in terms of her facial expression. That's and so amazing. I find that I kind of have these really over-the-top facial expressions at times or people sort of react. So it's like, why are you so, re- oh, no, that's just normal for me. That's just normal for me to kind of have that strange, you know, over the top face. 
And so I felt like that was something that enabled me to continue an embodied kind of relationship and connection with students, despite the fact that I'm doing it in a medium, by the way, that I would never choose, that I would never have chosen before. And now actually, it's grown on me in ways that I wouldn't necessarily say I prefer it, but I think there are ways in which I feel like I can use it. So I'll say that to start. So Anne and I have been thinking about the conversations we had over the past year. I experienced initial conversations mostly to be technological. How do I use this tool? How does it operate? Where do I get it? And then we moved into this phase of that was instructional. How do I teach with this tool? Can I replicate what I used to do in the classroom through this tool, through this environment? But I think the last three months or so, the closing out of this, you know, spring 2021, the conversations have been more, I, I don't know if the word is spiritual or, or moral or, but really more centered on some of the themes that you were talking about, like connectedness and meaning, the affordances of being in one another's physical presence that really don't have to do much with the content per se, but just the context. And also what the pandemic revealed around persistent and in some ways invisible inequities and challenging or undermining the belief that all students begin from a similar starting point in my class. And I measure their development from that starting point. Mm -hmm. But now realizing that that's just a fallacy, right? That's a convenient kind of fiction that lets me believe that I'm fair in my assessment and evaluation and that there's some kind of ob objectivity mm. in, in my analysis of their achieving of the competencies. And it leaves, I think, the naughty problem of now that I know, wh what do I do? Does, does that make sense to you as a person who operates sort of in the dimension of spiritual conversations? I think one of the things that I and many others have had to come to terms with, have we learned it? Have we mastered it? That's a whole other thing. But we've had to come to terms with the fact over this past year that our students, as you say, come to us from at all different levels in all different places. And that has been revealed to us in ways that we didn't know. So in a sense, I'm maybe restating what you've just said. But a lot of that has been at an emotional level that to some extent was present to us before the pandemic, but I think that really has become much more magnified. And as I think about my teaching over this past year and then reflect on what I was doing before, I think one of the things that I want to bring forward, I think this is in, in a certain way a response to what you've asked, Steve, is to have a more refined capacity to to let's say meet students where they are, right? I suppose I wanted to do that before, but what I want now to do is to try to undertake that work with a lot more mindfulness, care, precision. And I suspect that's gonna be a challenge as we continue to move and change. And you know, we're, we're going back to something, I suppose. But, but there is, of course, no going back. The, the thing that we were doing before isn't going to exist. I'm not saying anything that, that anyone doesn't know isn't going to exist in precisely the way that, exist, that it existed before. And so I think the challenge that I want to kind of put to myself is to figure out how to be the 
flexible um, present teacher that I hope that I was this past year going forward. And I think that had been by by necessity ramped up a little bit <laughs> this past year. And so my hope is to sort of bring that forward. Can you talk a little bit more about either how that manifests in terms of like specific policies that you're going to change? Does it change the way you grade? Does it change the way you look at class participation or attendance? Like that would be one area I'd like to, to hear your thoughts on, right? What is, how does that idea of being flexible and meeting students where they are actually translate into practice? And then the other thing I'd love to hear you talk about is how that connects to your sense of student learning. And let me add a word that I think is intention with this flexibility, which is that old word about rigor, right? Like it's important that I'm rigorous. It's important that I, you know, demand a bunch of my students that, you know, learning happens in conditions of stress that we can't learn unless we're pushed. And so how do we think about balancing flexibility and understanding of our students' variable needs? Uh, we can't, I don't think, just say, okay, everyone just lie down and be in Shavasana for 75 minutes and you get an A at the end of the class. And now you've learned about faith and critical reason because, you know, this yoga pose is good for you. I mean, it might be, might be pleasant but it's not learning. Flexibility, learning, and rigor. My first thought is this. One of the things I adopted this past year was really beginning each class with a meditation exercise. And mostly what I did was draw things off the web um, that, that enabled students to experience a variety of of possibilities from across religious traditions for engaging with um, something more. And so, you know, being mindful of the fact that they come from all sorts of backgrounds, some people of faith, some of not, but still providing a space for them to encounter something more. And so we did that through sacred music, through guided meditations, and through, um, you know, even sometimes just sort of a little comedy act that I would pull up that, that I think had spiritual content. I'll begin there and say one of the things that I adopted was this practice that I'm going to bring forward because I think it actually really set the tone for the classroom and enabled people to be present and find themselves present in ways that I think were helpful and useful to the, to the subsequent conversations that we would have. And of course, you know, it, I think particularly helped us within the context of, of Zoom where there was a need for maybe a different kind of need for some kind of grounding. One of the other things I'll mention is that I found a number of students approaching me this past year and saying, I find myself unable to write and you have these writing assignments. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's a problem. And so I said, okay. And just to back up for a second, I'll say that I found myself unable to read seriously this year. And so it's, it's uh, and, and though I had to and to press on, I've been doing it for an awfully long time, right? And so, and and I can't expect that from my students. And so I said, well, what what do you propose? And different students propose different things. Um, 
a lot of audio content, a lot of, of, of um, things like that, a podcasting type things in, in lieu of a written essay. I was happy to be able to guide them through, through that kind of, of exercise in lieu of, of some writing and to enable them to you know, hone some capacity to, to become, let's say, eloquent in, in a different format than I had planned. And you know, my hope is to continue to be open to that, um, but furthermore, to develop more assignments that enable students to, um, on the one hand, either be stretched in new ways, you know, the student who might want to write that's me and not, you know, speak through podcast. That's me, right. Um, would be, would be pressed to do a podcast. And then the ones who are, who are podcasters might be pressed to do writing. And so, so I want to, um, kind of, I guess, move forward in such a way that I'll be asking them to do things differently, a little bit differently and to maybe again, press them in ways that I might not have, Let's say not equally, but but you know, give give some more equal opportunity for people to be pressed in different ways. Now to bring it back to this thing of rigor. Uh, I love that question, and it's so interesting as I think about it. And I say as I think about myself as a student and as a person as I've grown, hopefully grown, or as I've at least developed over the course of however many years. Went to my college reunion, my 25th college reunion a couple weeks ago over Zoom. And it was delightful not only to see some old friends and colleagues, right, my fellow students, but also it was really especially great to see some of my professors. It got me to thinking about how I as a student was very much into rigor. I was like the rigor guy. Like if the syllabus looked soft, that I wasn't going to take it. And if it looked, if it had words like rigor and you're going to be made to and this sort of thing, then I was thinking like, this is my kind of thing. And you know, it's funny how life is. And you kind of, <laughs> you encounter different things and different challenges and different people. And, and suddenly you find yourself moving in, in ways that, that, you know, we're not expected. I'm probably the last person now who's going to put rigor in my syllabus. I want it to be sort of self-evident that this isn't going to be easy, you know, and I think it is. Um, and I do ask my students to work hard. And I'm always saying to them, you are working hard. This assignment is hard for you. So when you are struggling, you are struggling because it's hard. I guess what I have come to value is a balancing of being challenged with being supported. And I suppose I didn't necessarily value that as a younger person. I just wanted somebody to say, to kick my ass and say, go out and do this and either sink or swim. And I don't want to do that as a teacher. So I guess, you know, uh, uh, things that I've been learning over the course of, a, of an academic career, I think were affirmed over the course of this past pandemic year in terms of my teaching and my desire and what I desire to be as, a, as an instructor, a colleague. Um, um, I'm somebody who doesn't use technology as willingly as other people, in part because I'm easily distracted. And I know that technology for me becomes uh, a means of distraction uh, too often and too easily. 
And so in part, it may be that I haven't quite developed the appropriate disciplines about my use of technology, right? I don't know the right answer to that, but I, but that leads me to say this. I don't necessarily have the appropriate vision for what, let's say, post-pandemic teaching will or ought to look like, but I'll say two things about it. I think it would be desirable for us to think about our teaching as a humanistic enterprise, right? Or to reconnect with our teaching as a humanistic enterprise and think about ways in which technology can enable a humanistic enterprise. I'm talking about whether we're teaching in the business school or the law school or the school of education or a school of social service, um, not just in arts and sciences. You know, how can we ensure that this remains a humanistic enterprise? The second thing I want to say is that if, in fact, that is a good way to go forward, if, in fact, uh, you know, education as humanistic enterprise is ultimately a desirable goal for us moving forward out of the pandemic, I think it's based on practice. And what do I want to say about that? I don't necessarily just mean practice in the classroom. I think it means practice of, of living and ways of being in the world. And so I, I really do think it's an opportunity for us to think about ways in which we can support faculty colleagues in, in humanistic practice, let's say. And so in my own work with faculty development, I try to do a little bit of that. And I could say some more, some more about that. But I, but I could also think, for example, of ensuring that, that faculty colleagues are given access to things, practice that can ground them, and to then be able to, to think about that practice as feeding into their life as a teacher scholar, not just as something ancillary and that they, they do as a person. I often will say to my faculty colleagues, to our faculty colleagues, what's most important to me in engaging you around, let's say the questions of, of Jesuit Catholic mission at Fordham University is to engage you as the person and the scholar teacher that you are. And I would like to say that for reasons I think I understand and maybe even some good reasons, there can be a strong dividing line between those things, between the person and the scholar teacher that we are. But I wonder if there are ways in which we can be creative about being supportive of people as both the persons and the scholar teachers that they are so that these practices can sustain them and can be understood as being sustaining across the various uh, intersectional persons that we ultimately are. I would like to think about ways in which various practices can ground us in order for our work to be, as scholars and teachers, to be humanistic. And I think we need, first of all, perhaps an apparatus to think about the connectedness of all these things. Knowing like where the students are coming from and taking greater strides to teach them where they are, but really rethinking where I'm coming from. What am I bringing into my teaching? And should my teaching really be separate from myself? And where should that separation be? What kinds of disclosures do I make? What kinds of vulnerabilities do I expose in myself? How might the willingness and the ability to do that be tempered by other factors around demography and experience and, and so on? Quick 
thing I want to sort of raise in response to that. It's it's really interesting the ways in which I um, have a practice of disclosure and, and concealing with my students, right? And, and I try to disclose ways in which I can be seen as vulnerable to them. And I actually also, I want even for them to laugh at me a little bit. I show them my flip phone. You know, at some point in the semester, I'm like, ah, look at this. And they're like, what a square, you know, or however they might say it. But but I want but I want to expose myself as vulnerable um, to them in, in various ways. And I want them, first of all, to be able to laugh at me a little bit. But really, another thing that's that's really important to me is that I don't play all my cards. Or I don't show them all my cards. And let me give you an example of this. So I teach I teach faith and critical reason. It is not my job to convert anybody. I sometimes students come in with this fear that this course is going to be designed to kind of convert them and to make them into, you know, good something or others, you know, people of faith or whatever. That's not really my job. And so I am very circumspect about my own sort of positionality when it comes to faith. As it turns out, I'm a person of faith, right? But at the end of the class, sometimes they'll say to me at the end of the semester, like, what are you? And often enough, and, and to me, it's a little bit of a scary question, right? Because I've, I've done a lot of work to, to, to kind of gain their trust and to make them feel like I'm not selling them something, right? So, but at the end, well, I'll say like, well, what do you think I am? And some of them will be like, I don't know, I'm confused. Uh, I think you might be Jewish. Okay. Somebody else, you know, will say, I don't think he's Jewish. I think he's atheist. And another person will say, like, he's totally Catholic. And as it turns out, I am a Catholic. I'm a believing Catholic. But, but one of the things about that encounter and that engagement that I sometimes have with my students, and I've done a really uh, hard work at, at trying to kind of gain, again, their trust by making them know that I'm not trying to sell you something, it's a, it is a work of concealment for me. So, so it's very interesting. I want to be vulnerable and present to them as myself, but I also don't want to give away everything. And so I find myself in this interesting space. One of the choices that I made when I became a parent was to really make sure my students knew that I was a mom because I have a lot of students who haven't met women who are super committed to their careers, who are also mothers. And I wanted all my students to see both of those identities interlocking in the person who was, you know, leading their class that semester. Because for the men and the women, for all the students in the room, that was an identity that for many of them was a little bit on the rare side. And so they always tell them that I have kids and that I'm proud to have kids and that they're an important part of my identity in my life and I adore them. And I'm also, you know, going away for a conference, so there won't be class on Thursday, right? I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the faculty development work that you do, because there's a lot of the work that you do under the aegis of mission integration and planning. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about, from your perspective, what you feel like faculty need to be stronger teachers, to be better instructors. You know, much of my work around faculty development, as it turns out, is about trying to build communities uh, of people at Fordham or a community of faculty at Fordham. 
I'll say that one of the things I think that people, that faculty colleagues of ours most want is a sense of sort of an experience of, of kind of having a meaningful relationship to one another and to their institution. Much of my work ends up being about trying to create contexts in which faculty are given the opportunity to build those kinds of relationships with one another and with the institution. And so what I ultimately try to do is kind of ask them big questions that are and, and invite folks into conversations about free speech on campus, for example, or diversity, equity, inclusion and mission or, you know, public life or um, meritocracy, and ask them to engage with those questions that are often already interesting to them because they're part of the larger conversation around higher ed today. And then to fold in sort of questions about what our mission says we are and, and um, says we want to be. And then ask people to think honestly, authentically, and critically about how, we, how well we do or don't do those things. What I find is that in trying to build these communities of, or a community of, of faculty um, and in developing the relationships to one another across disciplines and schools and to the institution, I find two things. One is a lot of times I think people don't feel like they've ever been invited into a serious critical conversation where they can be authentic, um, authentically themselves and authentically critical about the institution and be invited to that in ways that are supportive. And I think that that, that is something you know that you're doing, that, that we're doing authentically inviting and engaging. And so I think we we definitely overlap in our work. We're, I think we're both trying to create these experiences of meaningful community. And I'll say this too, in, in answer to your question of what is it that people can use um, to become better instructors, to be better instructors, I guess I'm going to fall back on that. It was pointed out to be me recently that a lot of times our self-identification as scholars is across our disciplines. And so we end up being closer to people, let's say at NYU who are in our discipline or at uh, Santa Barbara who are in our discipline than we are to the people in our own contexts within our own universities. A foundational part of the work that I try to do with our faculty colleagues is a sense of interdisciplinary intellectual community that is, is to develop a sense of interdisciplinary intellectual community that can be sustaining at a level of beyond just ideas, you know, and into a, an experience of meaningful intellectual community. Now, do I have the data that can point to you that can show you that that is valuable for people's teaching? I actually don't. And yet, I think as we try to be agile teachers, as we try to be supportive instructors and mentors, I think the capacity to engage interdisciplinarily across the boundaries of the law school and the ed school and the colleges of arts and sciences I can only think can be helpful and can be a part of a larger toolbox in sustaining us and in enabling us to improve in our capacity to be good instructors and mentors. 
um, the other week, Steve and I both participated separately in a, in a retreat that you planned. My question is, one of the prompts of this day-long retreat was to invite us to narrate our post-pandemic future. And at the end of the day, we came together and kind of talked about what had emerged from us in our reflection in one-on-one conversations and in small group conversations. And I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective as facilitator, you got to hear a lot of different comments. What emerged from you as major themes? Maybe what surprised you and what you heard from our colleagues about how, how we're, how we as Fordham faculty are thinking about moving forward. Yeah, thanks, and that was a pleasure to be able to engage with colleagues across the schools um, for for three different versions of the same retreat. Um, we had about fifty people participating from every school, and across those three days, what the intended um, sort of movement of that retreat was first to ask people to narrate a pandemic and post-pandemic story about themselves to themselves. And then in small groups to another person. And then finally to to bring people together to think about how to narrate ourselves into a future and into, into a shared future. And a couple of the themes that sort of came forward was, first of all, I'll point out to, to the, the theme of resilience. I, I think people not only have had many people have had experiences of resilience over the past year, but they need to be reminded that they've experienced resilience because it's not always um, self-evident that we've come through um, because we haven't been unscathed, but but we still have been resilient. And I think people at, at some level need to be reminded of their resilience. And I think that was a theme that came forward uh, in these retreats. Another theme that came forward was um, an experience of unhappiness, even anger with with Fordham as an institution, with other institutions that people are engaged in and with, and the ways in which these institutions have been adequate to the challenges of the moment. And it's really important for me and my work to be able to create a space where people can give voice to those concerns, um, sadnesses about about institutions. And I think people to, to some extent kind of gave voice to that. And was I surprised by that? No, in no way was I surprised. That stuff is really real and people need a space to be able to give voice to um, to that. And it did come forward. I'd love to hear you just share a story of some, a teacher who mattered to you and why that person stands out in your memories. So, you know, typically... I'm not going to give you one person. I'm going to give you three, and I'm going to do it quickly. The first is the person, the woman who taught me, I believe, how to write. And her name was uh, uh, Mary Catherine Barron. And she's she's a religious sister, and she taught me in high school when I was in ninth grade and again when I was a junior and senior. And for whatever reason, you know, she used to kind of um, give me a hard time and... Um, and sort of pushed me around a little bit in ways that were were appropriate, right? But um, 
you know, she taught me how to write. And I, I always think of her when I write a sentence. Well, not, not every sentence, but when I'm writing something, I always think back to Mary Catherine Barron and, and how, how crucial she was in my development as a person, because I find that I only think in my writing. So, so there's one. Number two is a guy by the name of David O'Brien. David O'Brien was my my college mentor um, and and a dearest dearest friend until this very day. Um, and the godfather and he and his spouse uh, Joanne are godparents to my middle child. And and David um, is is and always will have been a gift to me because he ushered me into um, the academic world um, and just enabled me. And he told me probably one of the best bits of advice I ever got from an academic colleague. Um, and I didn't believe it at first, but it, but it rings true. He said, listen, you're gonna love the academic life, but you're gonna need things beyond it because it will not fulfill all your needs. And I'm like, when he first said that, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I, this is great and fun and I love it. And, you know, I realized like he was, he was for real. You need other outlets in your life, right? Than this academic thing, which only will carry you so far. And the third person I'll say is uh, my graduate mentor, a guy by the name of John McGreevy. McGreevy's like a real historian, like he's a really good historian. And, you know, John, I think when he met me must have been confused because, um, I'm not that smart and I'm not, you know, I was rough around the edges. And uh, and I remember he said to me in, you know, let's say my first semester of grad school, I think you're naive and I think you need to learn an awful lot. And, you know, John was absolutely most forthright with me. And my response to him was, and I remember this as clear as day, I was thinking about it recently. I think you're right, John. And, you know, it was, um, it, it was the, and John has always been honest with me. And so those three people, Mary Catherine Barron, David O'Brien, and John McGreevy, they're the best. Well, that was great. I have to just, for the record, let the record show that I, I want to disagree with your self-assessment of your, as not that smart. Um, let's, let's maybe retract that. Um, otherwise, just terrific. So good to talk to you, Jim. Thanks for being here. Thanks to both of you. It's a joy to have you as colleagues and to be in this conversation with you where I feel like I can say what I think, you know, and just to quickly say something about that. It's not always the case that we're in relationships with people where we can say what we think, but I value that in you and I, I very much value it in you. Thank you. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twice over one or email us at twice over podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.